Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of You're Probably Okay. I am so excited to host today's guest, Michelle Martin. Michelle was a PLS major here and is now the Managing Director, Innovation and Advisory Services Lead for Health and Public Service at Accenture. However, as you'll hear today, she is so much more than that to us here at Beyond the Dome. Mm. Michelle, thank you so much for sitting down with Lucy and me today, and it is great to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm super happy to be here. This is my first time doing a podcast, so... You started in the big leagues with the Beyond the Dome, You're Probably Okay podcast. That's pretty... I, I know. I mean, this is kind of a the great inaugural opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome. Um, <clears throat> Michelle, you've been a believer in and friend of this program from day one. Your passion for arts and letters and your belief in our students has been a key driving force in the creation of one of our best things that we do, our Imagine a World competition series. And I often quote you when speaking to our students when you say, if you can do PLS, you can do mergers and acquisitions. I just feel (laughs) like you're a person who's always gotten what we're trying to build here and the message we're trying to instill. Your support of what we're building here at Beyond the Dome is humbling, and we can't thank you enough. And all that said, uh, it amazes me that this incredibly special relationship you fostered with Notre Dame and the College of Arts and Letters almost didn't happen. In fact, one could say you secured the last ticket on the train when you got into Notre Dame. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> so take us back to your senior year of high school and tell us a little bit about your Notre Dame story. Yeah. Okay, so it's a it's an unusual Notre Dame story. I wasn't born and bred and didn't have the onesie with the ND on it. <laughs> um, my, my family is military and we moved about every three, sometimes three and a half years, uh, and as luck would have it, we moved uh, in, at the very end of my high school time as well, moved to Memphis, Tennessee from Naples, Italy, uh, culture shock. And um, when, I, when I got there, of course, I joined, uh, you know, all the church organizations. And at that point, there was something called CYO, Catholic Youth Organization. And we were on a trip one day and I was sitting next to a boy and he goes, hey, you should go to Notre Dame. And I was like, what is that? Where is it? And in those days, um, we didn't have, we couldn't Google. We didn't have internet. Um, we had this very large, thick book that listed all of the universities and it gave all the stats and everything. So I promptly went home and looked it up and I thought, oh, hmm, interesting. Um, when I came up for a visit, I, uh, I called my parents after I got off the bus and I said, uh, I think I need to go here. And I was already accepted at another school locally in Memphis and full scholarship, et cetera. Um, and my parents were like, um, uh, well, this is the, uh, the spring of your senior year. Are you sure? And I said, yeah, no, I need to go here. Uh, so when they came up to get me to bring me back home, um, I had already made, <laughs> I had already made a, um, uh, an appointment at the admissions office, and my parents went with me to go and talk to the admissions counselor. Um, she uh, she was very patient, uh, listened to my story, and uh, she said, well, our class is full, um, so that's it. And, and I said, <laughs> oh, well, let me tell you more. And so I explained more about why I needed to be at Notre Dame. Long story short, I was on the wait list for about two months, last person admitted, and never looked back. That's uh, that's how I got here. And if I recall, you kind of wrote a essay on the spot. I did. <laughs> okay, tell me about that. I went over to the library, um, as one does, 
and uh, wrote uh, in longhand uh, a, an essay, filled out the whole form uh, on paper, and um, and then submitted it right there. So, and what was the topic of that essay? Uh, it was. I think it was about um, who who was the who would you like to have lunch with, or who's the most important person? I think they still have that. Um, I knew that probably everybody was going to say Jesus or something like that. And uh, so I said, instead, I wanted to have uh, lunch with uh, with uh, Socrates and Aristotle and have a discussion with them about the meaning of life. That's so, that's so <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah. Just like many 18-year-olds. As, as one does, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then tell me a little bit about how you found your way to A&L. Uh, so I, I came in, um, my father was military uh, doctor, so I thought I needed to be a military doctor. Um, so I was in Navy ROTC, and in those days you were required to be engineering-oriented or science-oriented. So I was, uh, I think my major was biology, um, and you had to take chemistry, biology, calculus, physics, all the major classes, and I didn't do great. And um, by the end of the year, I really wasn't doing great. I tried to do the best I could, but with 21 credit hours each semester, plus um, uh, plus ROTC, plus band, plus, you know, all the things, um, didn't do great. I got a call during the summer from Emil Hoffman, who's a legend on campus. Um, he, uh, he was a professor in chemistry, ran the chemistry class, uh, and he always took there were very few women on campus, so we always took special interest in the in uh, making sure the women were successful. Um, and he he called my house during the summer and said, uh, "Michelle, you need to you need to come back to campus and do summer school." And I said, "Oh no, I have a lot of things to do this summer." And he goes, "Put your mother on the phone." My mother got on the phone, and the next thing I knew, I was in the LTD station wagon coming back to Notre Dame for summer school. While I was there, he met with me every week, um, more of a career guidance. Um, and he said, you know, I really think you need to think about changing your major. Uh, and I said, okay, what do you got? And um, and he, he suggested something called the Program of Liberal Studies, which at that point had just changed from general program, GP, to a program of liberal studies. And, I, and he said, you get to read all the books you're supposed to read in your life, but you do it in three years. And I was like, oh, that sounds awesome. <laughs> so uh, pivoted to PLS, never looked back. Um, GPA was perfectly fine by the time I graduated. And um, it, was, it really was everything I ever wanted for college. And I got to, what is it, what's the saying? Uh, study everything, do anything. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, that was, to me, the, the perfect example. Um, I really, I, I read every single one of the book. I know some of my peers didn't, but I read every single one of my books. Um, and I just devoured them. And it was, it was really, really awesome. I would do it again in a heartbeat. Wow. So, Michelle, we could do a whole season with you um, of like a bunch of different episodes. We have so much to talk about. You've always been such an incredible role model to me and a sounding board. 
And your guidance has been so critical to my own career path. So for that, I want to thank you. Um, and I wanted to take a few key pieces of advice you've given me throughout the years and talk about with you, talk about them with you now. So here are three major pieces of advice you've shared with me. Number one, there's no possible way that you could have envisioned a future where there would be a thing called the Internet. Number two. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Current students are going to create their future. Yes. Number three, it's important for students to realize that while it's important to think about your future, you're gonna you're at a point in your life where you're living in this utopia and there will be never again a point in your life where you have this opportunity. And there's a beauty to that. And you suggested and recommended that students really dive in and explore that. So talk a little bit more about these and dive a little deeper. Yeah, I'm going to go backwards. Um, so I think it's uh, um, I, I love meeting with students. I meet with three to four students a week. Um, and we, we'll, we'll talk about anything from, you know, career ambitions to I don't know what I'm going to do when I graduate. And, um, and this can be from a freshman level all the way through seniors. I love meeting with them because um, and the reason why this podcast to me is so exciting is, you know, you're probably OK. I would even say you are OK. Right. Um, it's it's just a matter of you putting your arms around it. Um, and students here now are so very ambitious. Um, if I imagine a world where and the pressure that must be on you every day uh, to not only complete your classwork, but then to also get an internship, but then also to get a job. But then also there's just all the also's. Um, I fear and I worry that students aren't just pausing for a minute, taking a breath and looking around and seeing the awesomeness of being at the University of Notre Dame. I, I know if you ask any of the alums, they would tell you they wished that they had embedded or breathed in or just absorbed for a minute the awesomeness of being here. And in being in a, in a utopia, think about it. From here on, after you graduate, you're going to go out into New York City or to Chicago or to Austin, Texas or Seattle, Washington. And you're going to be surrounded by people of all shapes, sizes, ages, backgrounds, ideations, everything. Uh, you are right now in the middle of a utopia. Everybody's pretty much the same age. Um, everybody's here for the same reason, mostly. And it's uh, it, your food is completely cared for for you. Um, you're, you have a good safe place to sleep. You have a beautiful campus, which is borderline a country club to, to live on. Um, you've got teachers that care about you. You've got um, uh, staff that, you know, they wake up every day thinking about the students. This is, this is truly utopia, if you think about it. So enjoy it and, you know, embed in it. Um, make, your, make your friends. These friends are going to be lifelong and really enjoy it. Um, so those those are my my initial thoughts. Yeah. Um, as a senior, that that last part really resonates me with me. Um, just I feel like these years have flown by they and do. all the advice I'm getting right now from my family and like alumni who have graduated. It's just slow down, slow enjoy it, down. live in the moment. Like we at Notre Dame get so sucked up in like, what are you doing next year? Like, what are your uh -huh. plans? Yeah. We don't really talk about like, what, what are you working on right now? Like. What are you enjoying right now? Yeah. So yeah. I, I really appreciate that. Yeah. And enjoy the work that you're doing. I mean, you're learning. 
So mm-hmm. this is this is a time where you can take the classes that you've just always wanted to take. Um, when I was uh, right after I graduated uh, with my master's degree, I was um, a uh, an advisor at, in the freshman year of studies, and um, some of the students would say, "How do I decide what my major is?" And I said, "This is in the old days. I want you to go over to the bookstore." And I want you to walk up and down the aisles. Imagine you have a million dollars and you can buy the books from any part of the aisle. Where would you, where, what books would you buy? And that should be your major. So if you're, if you're super excited about chemistry and chemistry compounds or geology and the, you know, the history of rocks or I don't know, then go do that. Right. If you if you like I wanted to buy all the books on Aristotle, <laughs> you should know where your major is going to be. Um, this again, I, I, back to the utopia. This is your time to embed and to spend the time thinking about the things you want to think about and develop into the person you think you want to be. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit more about um, the way you as like a college graduate could have never envisioned a world with the internet and kind of how we're going through a similar, I guess, shift um, in terms of the rise of generative AI. Yeah. Um, Every student that I meet with, I know they probably roll their eyes because maybe I have a reputation now that I always talk about this. I, um, (laughs) uh, when I was here, we had phone lines that were connected to the wall um, and no, no voicemail. Um, I mean, if you wanted to get a hold of someone, you either saw them on the quad or you banged on their door um, or you called them and hope that they were there or not. I don't know. Um, left a message with a roommate, which usually probably didn't get to them. Um, that now with cell phones, any, everyone are, is available anytime, anyplace. Um, our papers were done on IBM Selectric typewriters. Uh, and you had a backspace that you could correct the type that you had on there. <laughs> Just imagine it's painful. Um, some of us had this um, brand new thing called an uh, Macintosh, um, which had 128k uh, memory in it, and we had a dot matrix printer in order to be able to do that. We had to go across the campus to the computer building, which I think now is IT and compile things in order to be able to submit them for uh, for our classes. We didn't have the internet. Um, and and if, if I ask Michelle Martin, who's 21 years old, if she could imagine a world, sorry, of, <laughs> plug it. of what, the, uh, what a, a world would look like with technology, I, I couldn't have. Um, there, there, there wasn't anything that that was like this. And I think it may be very similar to what your generation is going to go through with AI. AI has been around for a long time. Uh, if you look at the textbooks and some of the people I've met through my career uh, who actually started AI um, or our professors at Stanford that, you know, created AI, it, uh, it's been around for a long time, but it's never been so very available to regular people mm-hmm. like it is today. And I, I think it's only going to it's only going to accelerate from here because everybody's going to be able to to access it. Everyone's going to be able to um, ideate from it. Uh, maybe it's similar to a calculator, which was new in my generation to from my my parents' generation. Um, you know, it's going to assist. Now, I will make I will make a proclamation here. It will never be AI on its own. It's always going to be human plus machine. Mm-hmm. 
And I think it's it's your legacy, your future to define and design what that's going to look like, both from an ethics perspective, from a technology perspective, and then from a utility perspective. Mm -hmm. And it's I don't think we can even imagine what that future is going to look like right now. Um, and we have to be okay with that. And I will say, an arts and letters education allows you to to wander around in chaos and put uh, parameters around it, put structure around it, such that you can eventually navigate through it. So, I have a feeling there's going to be an arts and letters person that will uh, that will emerge, or people that will emerge as the Elon Musks of of AI. Um, who have put and harnessed around what um, AI human plus machine looks like. And they'll be inspired by this exact podcast. They will. They will. They'll tie all their success back. I have declared it. The it will timing, be so. The timing of that statement is incredible. Last night we hosted uh, Dr. John Behrens, who's the head of CDT here in Arts and Letters. Um, so basically for those listening, the technological piece of the, of the college, um, he's a real expert on AI. And, you know, one of his big fun moments last night for us, because it was open to to uh, any student, but primarily A&L, was just kind of his, his real thought about the inputs is what's going to matter the most with AI. To your point, it's always going to be human plus. And AI needs to be driven by philosophy majors, psychology majors, American studies majors, mm -hmm. not just the people who get the tech piece of it, yeah. the human element of it. Uh, because his, to, to put it bluntly, what he said was technology used to be a robot. Now it's a dog that we're expecting it to know what to do. Right. And you have to train it and you have to, it's just a lot more uh, animalistic now. I like that. Yeah. Did, did he talk about prompt engineering? Yeah. Yeah. Craft, craft all that. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Craft. She, so she's in one of his shot, classes. One shot, so she, yeah. mm -hmm. tree of thought, chain of thought. He, yeah, he's a, he's. He's teaching a generative AI class for students right now, mm -hmm. and I'm in it, and it's fascinating. Yeah. We just did a, this last week, we did poetry in AI and creativity in AI, whether or not it's going to replace, could it ever, what does that even look like to like work in tandem? So very cool stuff. I, I, I'll, I'll advocate. I think it's, it's even more important that we develop these critical thinking skills now that we have this tool available. Um, because just because it spits out an answer doesn't mean that that is the answer. Mm -hmm. And so you have to overlay critical thought. Um, you have to ask the questions. You have to dive down deeper, especially now that it's creating its own sources. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. I, you know, it, it, which are fiction, right? Um, you, have, you have to be able to press on those various different areas. Um, critical thinking and the the skills that um, arts and letters students are are learning in their day to day classes and probably broader in classes like you're talking about yeah. with Professor Barons, um, that they're, they're they're gonna set the foundation for for what's coming. I 100% agree. Most of what we do in our classes is just making sure that your sources are credible. Mm -hmm. um, all that critical thinking and analytical process that goes into um, picking the right sources and just making sure that, I don't know, just not to take it at face value that's and right. always dive deeper. Yeah. And that's something that I feel like arts and letters students definitely have an advantage of because we've been doing it since day one here. Let me also posit here that um, it's the technologists will need to partner with social scientists, will need to partner with artists, will need to partner with philosophers 
um, to to be able to ensure that the the data underneath aren't biased, to to ensure that the output of whatever the research or the study or or the AI um, is plausibly true, knowing that true is it's hard to it's hard to button down. Um, but they're always gonna there's gonna have to be more and more of a partnership. We plugged in uh, as a thought experiment. We plugged into Chat GPT last night, build a career development program for a liberal arts college. What it didn't recommend was a podcast. So I know that uh, humans still have the see? edge because yeah. I thought of it. AI did. That's right. So. That's right. That's right. See, the data aren't correct. <laughs> yeah. We're still. Well, smarter. did you do the craft method? No. <laughs> um, but this is really cool. This is a great segue into one of the things I love about you the most, Michelle. Is just every time I leave a conversation with you. Uh, definitely leave inspired, but I also learned a lot. Mm. I've never, I don't know that we've, look, we meet a lot of really, really fantastic people in this, in this campus and in this line of work, but um, you're one of my favorites. You've always spoken so passionately about whatever you're working on at the time mm. and really opened up my, my mind and, um, and eyes to the possibilities. For example, when you talk passionately about the healthcare space mm. and then we sit down and I'm going into a healthcare talk with Michelle in our last one, I left understanding that now Uber and Best Buy might affect healthcare more than anything moving forward, which is a bananas thing to think about. Right. So uh, I want to know from your perspective, what are some of the nuances of the healthcare space that maybe people don't realize right now? And what is exciting to you and how are things changing? Let me do a couple did you knows, my favorite. Um, It'll be a new segment on the show. Right? We can can call it did you know segment. (laughs) Number one. <laughs> so uh, on Best Buy, did you know yesterday Best Buy announced that they are partnering with a hospital system to create what's called home hospital. So people have heard about home health care um, and, uh, at, at, you know, where you can uh, all with all the digital devices that are available from your watches to your blood pressure to even like a heart stint um, can have a can have a code on it that allows someone to be able to track the efficacy of the uh, of, the, of whatever the device is. Um, so Best Buy now is going to do something further, and, and we've been predicting this for a bit, um, called Home Hospital. So rather than having someone stay in a hospital, which is just riddled with bacteria and sick people because <laughs> it's a hospital, um, why not have them go, uh, go home? Um, where they're comfortable, where their family or their people or their dog is, uh, they will more likely recover quicker. Or if they end up uh, dying, it's in a comfortable environment, not a sterile environment. So imagine a world, again, of uh, of where home hospital is. So that's one, did you know? Um, you can look it up. Uh, uh, Instacart Health and Uber Health. One of the biggest problems in social determinants of health today is lack of transportation. Mm. So whether it's pregnant moms who need to get to appointments, whether it's um, uh, delivery of uh, healthy groceries to a to a family that you know maybe it's a growing family, maybe it's uh, an infirmed older person at home. Um, imagine a world where that transportation uh, issue is no longer a problem. 
So Uber Health and uh, Uber has created a health leg, um, which is all about transportation, as well as getting uh, your pharmaceuticals to your home or um, getting your uh, your groceries or whatever to your home in a safe and timely environment. Same thing with Instacart Health. Um, how many of us shop using Instacart? And especially during uh, the, the years of COVID, it was available anytime, anyplace. Um, you didn't have to go in and wear a mask into a grocery store. You could just have it delivered. So they're, they're taking that delivery mechanism and that transportation mechanism and eradicating it from being an issue for some of our poorest population of people or most infirmed, whether it's, um, you know, on the Medicaid or Medicare uh, type of, of area. I love this, that that companies are, are thinking about, uh, you mentioned supply chain, um, Lucy, they're thinking about the entire supply chain of, uh, of, of health services. Uh, and services along and then saying, which ones can we accelerate? Which ones can we step into? And then thinking further about how do we make money on that and how do we start to, to bridge the gap? I think the whole idea of personalized healthcare we've talked about, and we, we did imagine a world last year around imagine a world of personalized healthcare. And we had eight different um, topics that each of the, the students uh, delved into. I think that, that that's really where the future is going to be, especially as our population ages, um, as interestingly, our population is getting more healthy. Um, how do we how do we use um, health, the healthcare system more broadly defined to address the needs, uh, particularly of the of the poorest of the poor and then the infirmed? Yeah, and how can we redefine the healthcare system to yes. like serve these underserved communities? One of the big things that you've talked about is uh, how you move conversation to action. Have you know? I guess. Uh, the simplest way to phrase it is, are you optimistic about the speed of things in this world moving a little bit quicker now in the healthcare space, or is it still kind of a lot of talk, not a lot of action, or what do you think? I see sparks that are, that are really, really encouraging. One is um, I see a number of uh, companies that are stepping into the space like um, Kroger Health, and Walmart Health partnering with payers um, and even consumer goods companies uh, and and then together with the healthcare system to accelerate topical interventions. Um, I see I see that as as very exciting because they're going to move with speed and they and they see an impact not only for um, for their uh, for their companies, but then also for the companies that they serve. I see it as a board topic for many companies where they're, they, they either have a, a, a chief health officer, not only for their people, but also for the communities that they're in. And they also are seeing their uh, employees as basically part of the community. Um, so I'm, I'm seeing sparks of interest and brilliance around this, uh, around um, really wanting to make a difference. I'm also seeing uh, payers, which are the insurance companies for health, uh, uh, acquiring companies and then creating a whole health services arm. You can see that like United Health with Optum. You could see it with 
uh, Cigna that's got Evernorth, um, et cetera. And, and it's all about the broader set of services that are required to help a clientele, uh, a patient segment to be healthy longer um, and then to address um, the issues as soon as, uh, as soon as they are needed. I often say um, to, my, to my payer friends and clients, nobody calls a payer because they're having a good day. Um, they call because there's something critically wrong, either with, you know, their kid or with their person or their spouse or someone, uh, maybe even themselves. And and to have that met with um, answers and, uh, 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 and help along the way that will help them navigate that journey and know what's next. Um, you know, that's that's really where they're going. And so those are those are, to me, very heartening um, uh, little sparks that uh, that I'm seeing, and I think it's only going to accelerate, um, especially in the next maybe ten to fifteen years. That's awesome to hear. Um, that's another benefit of working here is we get to bring in people who know what they're talking about. And it always makes me feel a lot more optimistic. We had uh, uh, Mike Witt at Northrop Grumman come, Chief Sustainability Officer, the other day uh, here, and he just told me he feels really good about where we're going with climate change. It's just good. I need to hear these things mm-hmm. and things are getting better. I need them for myself, for my 18 month old. I'm very excited for the future. Let me also add though, that um, the students who are listening to this are the future, right? That um, there is, there is complete openness and opportunity for you to invent, to ideate, to innovate, to, you know, the world's your oyster right now. Um, you are going to create the future. And I know that sounds like an awesome responsibility and maybe overwhelming, but the, the, the little or the big idea that you have is relevant. And um, that's really where the advancements are going to come from. I agree. No pressure, Lucy. Yeah, no pressure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Michelle, I'm so excited for this next part. Uh-oh. Take it away, Lucy. All right. So we have reached the final slash second segment of the show. <laughs> <laughs> it's called, well, technically it's called the Fast Three with Jared and Lucy, but knowing us, it's not going to be a fast segment or nor is it just going to be three questions. So okay. let's just jump in. Right. You have given us some great advice to follow. But what advice should college students ignore? Oh. Hmm. Okay, number one. Ignore that your major dictates what you do. Um, I, I, I know, uh, again, I, back in my day, which was in the 80s, it was a long time ago, um, you, you always thought about what your major was going to be and then what you do. I remember when I started my PhD in philosophy, my father was like, what are you going to do with that? And I said, in a very cheeky way, I'm going to put out a shingle as a philosopher and uh, put my name in the phone book as philosopher du jour and make money doing that. And my father would shake his head. So your your major is not what you do. Um, My major was PLS and my master's is in theology. And I have done I've run technology in healthcare. I've run uh, technology strategy in banking. Um, Never could have imagined what that future would look like if you asked me as 22 year old 
your future is really your own right now. Study what is most exciting and important to you and the rest of it will come. Um, so ignore all the pundits that say you have to have a finance degree in order to do finance. You have to have a, uh, a, a business degree to do business. You have to have a science degree to do science. Um, that is no longer, it never was relevant, is really no, now no longer relevant. Ignore the idea that you can't go back and um, get further degrees later in life. You can. Um, and a lot of my colleagues do. So if you decide you want to go off and get a job um, after graduation and then uh, decide later what your uh, graduate degree could and should be, it's absolutely open. A lot of people do it. There's a lot of executive uh, executive uh, MBA companies or, or uh, opportunities. There's um, master's in healthcare. There's lots of things that you can do after. Um, so it's not that you have to immediately follow with graduate school. Um, it just, it may be a little bit harder later on because you may have a family, you may have travel, you may have uh, income that you don't want to get rid of. Uh, but there's lots of, lots of opportunities for that. Those are probably the top two. Michelle, over the course of your career, what have you gotten better at saying no to? Uh, I've got, so it took a long time because my entire career has always been about yes and then figure it out. Um, and it, I, I mean, I may really mean that in all honesty. Um, I, I remember when, um, when my leadership asked me to, to run operations for the, our product sector, which includes, you know, all of your retailers, all your consumer goods companies, all your travel companies. And I had zero idea about that set of industry, nor did I have any idea about business process outsourcing or infrastructure outsourcing. Uh, but in uh, in my wide-eyed moment, I said, sure, let's go do that. And, um, and then I spent, this is where the PLS thing comes in. I spent several months reading, talking, interviewing, um, more reading, more researching, more understanding, talking to our clients, um, and then aggregating what I thought really need to needed to change, uh, creating a point of view. Um, so I said yes and never looked back. Um, well, until healthcare came along and I said, I'd like to do that, please. That sounds good. Um, so uh, so my, my career has always been about yes. My, the no, the first no that I uh, that I had was, um, I was fairly senior. I was a um, second level partner or managing director at Accenture. And I realized that I had put my health on hold um, in the pursuit of income, in the pursuit of running up the ladder, in the pursuit of uh, of wanting to do better and make everyone you know happy. I um, and always saying yes. Uh, I had not had a physical in a long time. I had not been to a gym. I hadn't, and I realized that I was getting in increasingly unhealthy. And um, this is really cool. I, I not the not the unhealthy part, but the but what I did find is um, by starting to put guardrails and parameters around my health. Um, my team stepped up into the space that I was leaving behind or in the in, in the uh, appointments that I couldn't attend because I needed to go to the gym um, or just 
even even not going to a dinner um, with a client and my uh, my team would step in and they they got an opportunity to go have dinner with a client instead of me. Um, so I found that my team became healthier, my my life became healthier, my physical health became healthier just by learning to put more guardrails around it and saying no. Um, but but also adding no, however, Susie can do this or John can do this or whatever. Um, it it allowed the the team to grow and to step into their greatness. Um, which created even more of a legacy. So sometimes saying no actually gives more space for others to be able to step in and and fill in fill in those gaps. And and they may change the trajectory or change the direction, but that usually is better. Do you say no to Friday afternoon meetings also? I do. Yeah. So like two. Th- yeah. I do. I do. <laughs> I do. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when you feel overwhelmed or unfocused, what do you do? Uh, so I, I go to the gym. I love the gym. I um, And this is a, a late breaking thing. I, I really didn't find the gym until I was 43. Um, and that's, I know that's very particular. Um, but I, um, I just, I never really knew much about gym stuff and in my day, girls really weren't in the gym, you know, lifting weights. But I love the power of lifting weights. And mm-hmm. I love being able to mark that I can do it better or I can lift more or I can whatever. I, you know, I can bench press 135. What? Yes. And I'm almost 58. I'll Michelle, just, that's that right. is awesome. As soon as I got the big plates on there, I was like, <gasps> game on. We're good. Oh, my gosh. I can deadlift 245 pounds. Whoa, that's more than me. (laughs) So I thought that's a benchmark or anything. (laughs) (laughs) So all all I'm saying is that the the future is is out there. Um, uh, So for me, stress, uh, if if I go into the gym stressed, I come out relaxed. I'm good. Uh That's awesome. That's almost like my exact same thought process. Yeah. I love going to the gym and just like blasting some music and yes. getting a good workout in. Yes. Throwing some weight around mm-hmm. and yes, it's uh and and you can make a lot of noise. <laughs> and nobody nobody cares. Nobody cares. Um yeah. yeah, it's it's uh it's it's a good thing. I I wish I had found it earlier, but knowing my predilections, mm-hmm. I probably wouldn't have That's really fantastic cared or I would have ignored it, but I came into that certain time and, and finding the thing. I do think as far as stress goes, everybody has to find their thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I always tell my teams, especially when we're on, it's often called the death march, um, where you got to get a deliverable done. Um, and so you're working pretty much like around the clock. I always tell people, everybody, you have to take two hours sometime during the day Please don't take it all at the same time, but everybody take two hours and I want you to go walk, pray, shop, talk to your kids, um, lift weights, whatever, whatever Mm -hmm. makes you good and, you know, kind of detox from all the stress go. And inevitably everybody comes back and they're refreshed and they're ready to go again. Um, But you've got to, you've got to going back to, you know, putting borders around, you got to put borders around that and just let everybody know, but, you know, make sure that you have time for yourself. For a lot of seniors entering the workforce next year, 
um, putting borders around what you're comfortable with doing um, in terms of work-life balance could be challenging Mm -hmm. given you're in an entry-level job. What advice would you give to those students? It's it it is. It's hard because you're you're expected to be, uh, you know, there. Death march all the time. Uh, Well, (laughs) I used to be that way. I think I I do think employers have realized that that's not healthy for their older employees, their younger employees, entry level. It's it's just not good. Right. Um, But I, I, I do think having a conversation with your immediate manager as soon as possible about what their expectations are and then any type of parameters or constraints you have, whether it's childcare, whether it's um, bedtime, whether it's um, workout time, whether it's time you need to go to church, um, that as long as you put that out on the table and everybody understands it, then I, I everybody will, will work around it. That said, you do still have to be be there. And I, and I will also say in, in your first job and in your second job, um, you, you also have a little bit of FOMO, right? You always want to be there so that people pick you to do the cool thing. Um, so you do want to be available and be around and, um, and also make your interests and intentions known. Usually I take a, a, a couple a couple analysts a year under my wing. I think y'all met one, Rachel Brzezowski, mm-hmm. who is at our um, Imagine a World, and and she's a, she's a good example where I said, you know, here are three things I need you to do within the first three weeks of you being at Accenture. One, I want you to um, I want you to call these five people, and I gave her names of people, and they were pretty senior. And I want you to introduce yourself to them. So create your network. Uh, and uh, and she says, well, what what do I say? What do I talk about? So we talked a little bit about that. And it's it's about having that openness um, and introducing yourself because they don't know who you are, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the second is, um, is start thinking about who and what you want to be known for. And, and you may not know what that is, and it may change six times during your career um, at Accenture. But start out by doing some research about all the things that your company does and then start figuring out where would you like to dig into. It's kind of like declaring your major, right? Mm-hmm. Um, walking up and down the, the shelves of the bookstore to determine, you know, what what makes you excited and what makes you uh, light up. Um, same thing with a company and especially with a consulting company that does so many different things. You really just do some research, talk to some people, ask questions, and then start targeting opportunities that are in that area. Even if you may be aligned to something else, you can eventually navigate over there. And then the third thing is just being open and, as I mentioned early on, saying yes. So the first thing that may come across your desk as an opportunity to go do you may like Lucy. You're you're interested in supply chain, but what if the first opportunity that came was more in talent and organization? You know, people mm-hmm. uh, or uh, operating models or things like that. You may think, oh, I think I might I might just poke my eyes out to do that. Um, but you may get into it and say, oh, but here are the aspects of it that I really like. Um, again, very similar to what you've been going through for the past um, four years of taking a class, taking a chance, learning something new, and then incorporating that into the other things that you've that you've learned along the way, you're going to continue to do that in your career. 
it's only going to accelerate um, and grow as you keep moving up the ladder. Michelle, my uh, my last question. You've worked with tons of clients, all with different issues. My assumption is there's been some sort of a rhythm or theme over the years uh, with everybody has different problems, but also we all kind of have the same problems. So if you could only give one blanketed piece of advice to all your clients, if you could take out a billboard on the toll road with a quote from Michelle Martin, what would the piece of advice be that would work for pretty much everybody? That's hard. Not to Uh, put you on the spot. It's a tough segment. Yeah. It's, it's hard because their problems are, are so diverse. Look, people call a consultancy because they're stuck, right? Um, uh, uh, I often say there's three things, three reasons why they call a consultancy. One is just to get stuff done, uh, and they they need the extra capacity. That's that's easy. There's lots of consultancies that do that. The second reason they call is because they need an external perspective, um, and this may be because the board is asking them hard questions and they need to be able to respond um, with you know here's where the rest of the world is going as your podcast is, you're probably okay, or you're really, really out of market and you need to, you need to change. Or the third is that they need to ideate and do something completely different. Um, so that's the total transformation or whatever the consultancy lingo is at the time. Um, so when I think about why they, why they call, it's kind of hard to say that there's one, one billboard. I love the name of your podcast of you're probably okay, because in reality, they probably are okay, but the it's the depth and length of the pivot that they're going to have to ch- they're going to have to take that is going to cause some some challenge or some change. Um, and in some cases, it may also mean that they exit certain markets, which is never easy. Um, or they may have to buy a company. I love the M and A example you started out with. You know, they may have to buy a company, and uh, so. Which company should they go buy, and what it, what's the benefit or the not so great benefits of buying them? So, I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna answer it with uh, the title of your podcast of "You're Probably Okay." So I'm hearing is if we get a billboard endorsed by Michelle Martin, <laughs> yeah, it'll be "You're Probably Okay" in big font mm-hmm. and a QR code to this episode. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go. That's probably it. All right, we'll get on that. Yeah, yeah, or a T-shirt. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Why aren't we putting QR codes on T-shirts? I, I think we should. I think we <laughs> I think we should. Um, my last question for you is, what are you most excited about right now? I've uh, I've come to a, a point in my career where I, I'm not going to say I've done everything, but I've done a lot. And uh, and I love the idea of not only reflecting back, but forecasting forward as to, you know, where the where the future will go. Um, I have, uh, over the past almost, it's been almost two years that I've been spending on campus with students, um, with faculty and with staff, uh, uh, um, you know, ideating with them around what their, what their futures could, could look like, um, what's relevant in the marketplace. Um, these are the things that, that get me up in the morning. Um, and it's been, it's been a, a wonderful journey, maybe could even call it odyssey, um, to get here, to be able to spend the time, um, doing this. 
Um, I love doing projects that impact the communities that we're all in. Um, I've learned a lot about that, uh, living in a, you know, a, a, a fast paced business type world. Sometimes you just don't stop and look around. Um, and now having the, the time and possibly the grace to be able to look around and then say, oh, I could, I could work on that. I could, maybe I could even fix that. Um, that's, that's a pretty powerful position to be in. Wow. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for taking the time today to speak with us and share your story. I know I speak for all the fellow, all my fellow students when I say this has been an incredibly motivating uh-huh. um, journey to hear. And I cannot express how grateful I am um, to have people like you in our Notre Dame community. You have been such an amazing friend to Beyond the Dome, a personal mentor for me. And you just light up every room you're in with your energy in your purple sparkly jacket. <laughs> Um, so thank you so much Michelle oh it's been my pleasure and I um I was reflecting getting ready for this uh for this this session today um and I was imagining a world where Lucy Mm. is doing something really impactful and here's three things that I predict for you how about that are you ready (laughs) this is awesome you ready uh I think you're going to do something in the international world um, environment. I um, I don't know if it's Secretary of State. I feel like that might not be quite the right use for your skills, but I, I think it could be something in the government sector negotiating with entities um, truly changing the world, like capital W world. So that's number one. Number two, I think there's a probability you're going to invent something and you're going to be one of the top 30 under 30. That's actually a goal of mine. Uh, Forbes 30 under 30. Yep. I I see there's something there. Um, it'll be like uh, Sarah Blakely. It'll be like uh, like Julie Sweet, who's um, my CEO. It's going to, you're going to be doing something that's going to be front cover of a major magazine worthy. So that's number two. And then number three I think in addition to that, you're going to have some type of a charitable organization that is going to um, address some type of a uh, a needful population. And even if your day-to-day work doesn't get you on the front cover, it's going to be that thing. It'll be like Bombas. It'll be, it'll be something that is fundamentally world-changing. So that's my prediction for you. I'm going to cry. That's so nice. <laughs> I'm going to play that every morning as my <laughs> daily affirmations. <laughs> I think Michelle I, thinks I could do it. <laughs> I, th- I think you're remarkable. And um, and I, I really do think that um, when I think about the students that are going to change the world, I've had it, uh, the privilege of meeting many of them, but you're at the very top. Thank you so much, Michelle. Yes. That means so much of coming course. from you. Yeah. Oh, and thank you, Jared, for... <laughs> Letting me meet Michelle. <laughs> yeah, I like to think the Beyond the Dome board is a launch pad to Forbes yeah, 30 under 30 and inventing right. things and Secretary of State. And yeah. That's exactly what I thought. Why when... just pick one? <laughs> I'd like to do all three. No, seriously. Yeah. Thanks, Michelle. This yes. has been awesome. Of course. I appreciate you. Well, it's been a privilege and a pleasure. So um, there's only other good things. Jared and I are already cooking up the next thing. So yes. Yeah. So we've, we've got that. So stay we'll tuned. We'll tease it out on the next episode. That's right. <laughs> stay, stay tuned. tuned. Right. Jinx. <laughs> Thank you, Michelle. You're welcome. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening. Bye.